Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Carbonite. Carbonite Online Backup is automatic and unlimited backup for your computer files with anytime, anywhere access. Try it today at Carbonite.com and use their offer code TWIP and get two bonus months with purchase. That's Carbonite.com with the offer code TWIP. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, just go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP9. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. This week on Twip. Okay, wait a minute. Now they're saying size does matter? An Israeli company develops a smaller JPEG. And Flickr lets you put up a digital fence around your photos. And also Urban Outfitters and their photographer face a lawsuit from parents of a model that he photographed in a, let's say, adult manner. It's Saturday, September 3rd, 2011. And this is Twip. And welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show are Mr. Ron Brinkman, Sarah France, and Mr. Alex Lindsay, finally back on the show. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey, Sarah. You're ladies first. You haven't been on in forever. What have you been up to? What's, uh, what's going on in the world of France? Uh, well, it's wedding season, so we're hot and heavy on uh, on weddings. I've got a wedding, two day wedding up in LA today and tomorrow. Oh. So um, it, that's been really great. I've been doing a rebranding too. So um, you just did one of those like what three years ago? Come on, <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep keep it fresh. I think that's about right. Every three years, remake yourself. That's, right. yeah. that. that's what I do. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. And I've been doing some more commercial shooting. So we're going to be launching a commercial site coming soon. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Well, welcome back to TWIP. Thank you. That other voice was Mr. Ron Brinkman sitting hey. there, I assume, in a room full of books with no shoes on. Hey, Ron, what's going on? <laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on with the Brink? Oh, it's a little overcast here in Hermosa Beach today, but generally quite nice still. Um, you know, more of the same. More of the same, just hanging out, relaxing. You, you know, you are you are like the you're the goal of the American dream. You know, live, oh, no. live on a, in a coastal area. Don't have to do anything. Just hang out, take pictures whenever you want, and, well, I don't know and party don't at night. Right? Anything, <laughs> I just figure most people don't need to hear about the things I do to make money. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's not bring that up. <laughs> All right, and also on the show, of course, Mr. Alex Lindsay coming back to us. Alex, you you and I were talking offline a little bit. You've had a crazy week. What's what's been going on in your world? Well, we weren't we weren't doing as much foot photography. We were doing uh, we did all the live streaming for Salesforce.com's Dreamforce, which is their big. It's like their Mac world of the, uh, and so we had. Uh, uh, their keynotes as well as uh, a live stage that was running all day. And uh, so it was a big, you know, it's a lot of people, 30 people moving around uh, for long hours and uh, uh, over at Moscone Center. And it was, um, it was busy, it was exciting, very rough, but uh, it was exciting to do it. And 
a lot of fun. Very cool, very cool. And you sound you sound a little low energy right now. Are you, are you tired? <laughs> it, was, it was it was very long. I mean, it was it was basically three hours of sleep a night for about a week and a half to get it to get it all done. And, uh, and so now I'm just in kind of. Yesterday I kind of felt like yesterday was the first day off, and I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. And today I'm just about halfway up. <laughs> That's very cool. Wait. Um, Let's jump into the show. We got a lot to talk about today. There's a lot of cool stuff that uh, I want to get this this crew's opinion on. First thing is this story comes to us from DP Review and Petapixel, and it's about um, a new Israeli company, ICVT. They develop a method. They developed a method to optimize JPEG compression. And I always thought JPEG was already optimized, but they figured out a way to make these images even smaller to the degree of fifty to eighty percent. With the same image quality. So my question to you that's guys... 50, that's, 50, that's 50 to 80% reduction in the file size over JPEG. So over JPEG, yeah. Off, yeah, so like you take a JPEG and you squeeze it down and say it went from, I don't know, 10 megabytes down to 2 megabytes or, or less, then they're saying 80% of that, right? So then, Alex, let's go, let's go with you first. So what do we care about this? I mean, we've got these gigantic hard drives floating around, and it seems like... Size doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, is is this the case? It still matters when you're when there's a lot of it and you're trying to store it in the small small places. I mean, I think that size is is becoming less of an issue. But I do think that uh, you know we still deal with. I mean, I still deal with size issues, mostly with video, but still with even with stills. You know, how many photos you can throw onto a camera. For instance, uh, one good example is you want to do really long time lapses on onto a memory card. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that you start having to manage is you know your your resources you know if you don't want to touch that camera and move it around how many you know how many thousands of photos can you get on there and a lot of times you use jpeg and you want to make it a little bit smaller you know all of those things you take into account so things like that would be uh, definitely this would be very beneficial for, for for processes like that yeah yeah sarah what about you i mean you know you're you're shooting your your weddings and portraits and events and all that stuff in raw and then you're in aperture and you convert everything down and if you deliver it to someone, presumably it's a JPEG. Do you, do you care about a fifty to eighty percent reduction in size? Is that is that a blip on your radar? Um, yeah, of course it is. I I think if you can if you can reduce the file size, that just means less media, especially when you're sending images to a client or over the web. I mean, consistently we're transferring files over the internet and delivering the files that way. And if I can, you know, I mean, we do for a wedding, I, we end up with like two or three DVDs to the client. It's, it's still kind of ridiculous. And we're switching to USB drives now, but still I would love to like be able to have it not have an issue with the quality and, and, and still be able to get a smaller file size. I mean, I, I think I have a 10 terabyte, probably more actually, you know, drive server system in in my house and um and i'm still growing (laughs) you know it's getting ridiculous so but you're growing because you're storing your raw files on there not necessarily the jpegs right right but we we store the raw and the jpegs because we want the finished jpegs to be backed up in several different places so um anything to to help reduce the amount of storage that we're having to keep would would be great as long as it is not changing the quality. Yeah. What about you, Ron? Does size matter? <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't ask me that question. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm trying to be good now. You know, I'm turning over a new leaf. <laughs> putting, putting aside that, that question, um, 
Here's the thing. And so, and I warned you guys about this in the pre-show. In an unprecedented move, I'm actually going to bring some, some fact rather than just opinion to my commentary. And uh, <laughs> so I actually played with this JPEG Mini a little bit. And, um, you know, uploaded a file that I had saved at, at uh, high, high-quality JPEG. Uh, and it did a little, you know, crunching on it, and then I downloaded it again, and it reduced the file size from about 4.1 megabytes down to about 1.8 megabytes. So definitely, you know, more than a 50% compression, yep. which is cool. But Uh-oh. then you go look at it, <laughs> and it still looks decent, uh, but there's noticeable change to it. It looks a little bit grainier. You can start to see a few artifacts. So the real question here then was I went into Photoshop, into Aperture, and did some exports at slightly lower quality levels. Because normally when I come out of Aperture, I do really high quality, just to see what you could get with that. Uh, and so coming out of Photoshop at, uh, I think, at about a 7 or an 8, uh, you know, using their settings, you can get something that is not quite as small, like about 1.6 megabytes versus 1.4. Mm-hmm. This, this Negligible, gave. right? But yeah, so in the same ballpark and with about the same degradation in image quality. So, you know, I'm not going to discount what these guys are doing. It looks like they do have a good algorithm, but is it really revolutionary? I I don't think so. I think that, you know, it it looks like they're probably getting a slightly better looking image um, than you would get with an equivalent sized image out of Photoshop or, or Aperture or presumably Lightroom. So it's, um, it's almost it's splitting not. hairs. So what I, I was gonna I was gonna throw out there. What about ping? You know, or PNG format. And I, I remember when it first came around, it was like the holy grail of you get all the compression of JPEG. You still get a great looking image. Plus, you get an um, you get transparency and an alpha mm-hmm. channel in there. Why 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 iterate on the JPEG standard with no transparency or no alpha channel? When ping is sitting there waiting on us to to sort of transition over to Sarah, what do you what do you think about? It? Do you care about ping, or do you is everything just raw and JPEG for you? Um, everything is just raw and JPEG for me, and that's just a, kind of a standardization and and really what my clients are used to seeing and can use. So um, that's kind of where we live. But yeah. I totally appreciate you you actually going through the steps and like trying out that JPEG compression because now <laughs> totally. now me I don't too, even have to do it myself. Thank you, Ron. Um, and, I, I warned you. Actual the, facts. <laughs> don't get used to it, though. The answer is size does matter. There it is. All right. You heard it from Sarah France. Size does matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think the uh, the issue here is just you look at a workflow scenario and going through some third party image compression tool as an extra step is going to be far more disruptive than the the issue of using up a few extra megabytes on disk at least in you know in my typical workflow. So you know it, it does show that there's probably room for advancement in some of these algorithms. I'm sure we'll continue to see that. And JPEG has just kind of emerged as a real sort of baseline standard that. You can kind of count on anything being you know, able to open it, even more so than PNGs. And I mean, even JPEG 2000 is probably got, is, I'm, I know has better compression algorithms in it, yeah. but and, and you know also supports higher bit depth and all that kind of stuff. But it's kind of like you know, right now my world is I either have RAW, which I know is uncompressed and 100% quality, and I have JPEG, which I know can be read pretty much anywhere in the world and will almost certainly be able to be read anywhere in the world in. You know, 50 years, I should be so lucky. And uh, I don't really see a whole lot of need for a lot of intermediate 
formats unless there's some explicit feature like you mentioned where I, you want transparency or something like that. Right, right. Alex, what about you in the world of, of pro video and, and clients that are paying you gazillions of dollars? Is it is it a JPEG raw world for you when you're when you're on the still side of the fence? And does yeah, I mean, you know, we, or is it are you moving we, to ping? No. We we use we use ping for one thing. Wait, wait do people really call it ping? I call it ping. I like ping. I call it PNG, um, all right. PNG, PNG for the for the Brinkmans on the. On I've the just never heard it called ping before. I could be out of the loop. <laughs> yes, you have. Just a few minutes, not, a few seconds ago. Right? Yeah, loop. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, I uh, we use PNG files for. It turns out OmniGraffle, which is a program we use uh, a lot here. Which is uh, awesome. We're, we're, we do all of our um, wiring diagrams and all of our show flow diagrams all in in, in OmniGraffle, and so we. Um, so we have we have these templates that we build that have all like every piece of equipment that we use, and this is actually pretty good for photographers too. If you, one of the things you can do is you can actually go into um, uh, you go <laughs> we search you search and find all these photos of your 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 cameras, your lights, your recording devices, computers, everything else that you want, and then you you can you you bring them into Photoshop, you select the white, delete it. And then save it out as a ping, and ping turns out to be the uh, a PNG file turns out to be the best file to bring into OmniGraffle. And OmniGraffle, if you haven't used it, if you're a photographer, it is um, it is just this awesome way to kind of think things out about and do layouts and everything else. And so what you can then do is you can build a build a uh, library, a template that just has every photo of all the stuff that you actually own. And then what you can do is simply just drag that stuff in. And then and lay it all out the way you want it, so that you can kind of pre-plan how you're. We 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 literally pre-plan like where everything's going to sit on the desk and how the thing's going to be laid out long before we actually show up at the location, because usually we don't have a lot of time to set up, and we usually have to hand it off to a team to set it up, so we can just hand hand them photos of this is where everything has to sit, and then there's wiring diagrams for everything as well, and and we do all of that inside of OmniGraffle, and so we use PNGs because it likes those. Um, and, uh, and it gets you the transparency, which is mm-hmm. what it gives you the transparency so because yeah. what you're doing is you're putting a whole bunch of these things next to each other. So you don't want them to be, you want them to overlap with each other. And so, so the PNGs are great for that. That's, that's the only reason we use, uh, the PNGs, the, the, um, for us, raw is what we try to keep everything in until the very end, uh, or raw or we, up, you know, or some kind of, uh, uh, deeper format, mm-hmm. but definitely deliverables. Once we get it down to a point where it's, it's, we're going to deliver it to the client. We typically send it to them in JPEG because they don't necessarily have the tools to, you know, manage them. You know, it's and a so, common universal format where yeah, and, you're and, insured. You know, they're not going to say, "Hey, uh, what is this thing you put on the disk? I don't know what it is." Well, and assuming and assuming you have assuming that you are that you've color corrected it and you've gotten it, what what happens is, is if you save something out as JPEG, what you don't want to do after that, or you want to minimize after that, is a lot of post processing that's going to change the color. You know, that's going to push the color one direction or another, sharpen it. Um, you know, those types of things, those things will fall apart really quickly after you've quantized the image. And so, um, so those are things you want to kind of avoid, uh, doing, but it wants you as a final delivery format, it, you know, in the space that you're actually looking at it, you know, without doing more correction, it's a great way to deliver stuff. It's small and it's easy and they can look at it on their iPhone and their iPad. And yeah. a lot, you'd be surprised. Most of our clients now are approving photos that we've taken on their iPad. <laughs> so so we, cool. we, we literally save, save it out and open it up on our iPad and look at it, make sure it looks okay before we send it to them because we know that's what they're going to be looking at it on. So. That's cool. All right, guys, let's move on to story number two. This one comes to us from Steve's Digicams and it's about uh, Flickr adding new privacy settings that they're calling geofences. And basically, they're allowing you to set up um, a, a geographic sort of polygon or location 
within which is kind of a black hole. So your 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 photos won't show up in you know sort of image map or image searches in that particular location. However, over the weekend or over the last couple of days over on the Pixel blog, they linked to a discovery by our friend Thomas Hawk that said um, he found a loophole in this feature that doesn't actually remove the the GPS or geotagging from the EXIF data. So if people look at it on, on Flickr, of course, they won't see it. But if they download the original image with the EXIF data, it still has the, the lat long or whatever attached to it so they can find it that way. So my question to you, Ron, I want to throw it to you first on this. Sure. Since you're the traveler out there, do you care I mean, about this? Would you would you block out a, a, an area, you know, to to have your images blacked out from? Is this a useful feature to you? Well, I think it's the uh, not so much for the traveler side of me, but the person who might shoot a shot in their living room side of me, where mm. you know mm-hmm. theoretically, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that if you take a shot with your iPhone, which has a GPS tagger inside of it, and will stick that in the EXIF data, and then you upload that to Flickr, uh, and don't do something like this, and somebody else can pull that down and say, hmm, I see this. this <laughs> hey, look at that brand new Samsung 55-inch TV, exactly. and here's where it is. <laughs> yep, yep. You know, so fortunately, my three Rottweilers and the loaded guns I keep around the house will tend to dissuade people from doing that. <laughs> That's the key. You have to take lots of photos of those, too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right next to it. You know, take a picture of the booby trap wire. Right? Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, I, I, I actually like this. I mean, kudos to Flickr, first of all, for actually adding a feature uh, sometime in this millennium. And uh, it, But in general, I think... What, what a way to wrap a compliment in... in you know, <laughs> that's in what they call a backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's wrapping a dig in bacon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. We, we we could go off on that whole topic for quite a while, I suspect. Yeah, totally. But but no, I mean, I, you know, it looks like they did an interesting job of kind of thinking about how people would use this. I mean, basically, it's sort of like you know, you, you pretty much say, all right, these are sort of my protected zones where I don't want you know anything that I've taken this sort of region. I don't really want people to know exactly where it was taken because it's getting a little too close to home or to some family member's home or to the office or whatever. Um, yet still. You know, you don't have to think about it once you set this up. So you don't have to go in and explicitly say, I'm going to turn off geotagging when I'm traveling somewhere in, you know, the other half of the world and I don't care about revealing this GPS data. So I, it's, it's a decent thing. And, and honestly, the fact that you can go in and download the original file and still have the GPS data in there, it's maybe a little bit of an oversight, but in some ways you kind of want to preserve that sense that. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a huge oversight. I think. I mean, it's kind of like locking. I, you know, it's like locking your front door, but leaving the side door open. Yeah, but it's kind of like you know the issue of raw files, where you kind of want to assume that these are the files that came directly off the camera. And if you have an original, what you call an original, up there, uh, there's some sense to feeling like you really, truly are putting the original up there. And I think they should have you know big warnings saying you know this does have geotag data and and possibly. I agree. I mean, I agree that they should do a sanity check on this thing. Are you sure you want to do this? You, you know, do you know that this is still available? Kind of thing. So I agree in that respect. But well, you'll you'll hear in this is <clears throat> the interview that we'll we'll put in the show that I did with Jack Resnicki. He's talking about copyright and how he pretty much, as a rule, doesn't upload any images to Flickr, Facebook, or anything like that because of 
other issues like copyright, not necessarily location data. But that's in the that's in the interview that's coming up later in the show. Sarah France, what about you? Are you you care about this overall? This is an interesting feature. And from a professional standpoint, I don't know that you're uploading to Flickr, maybe Facebook. Does does geo data or this kind of feature make sense to you? Yeah, well, it does. I mean, it's a little less pertinent in our in our industry. Mostly, I, I want that tagging to be available, but I totally get the point that like not everything I'm putting online and a lot of what I'm putting online is very personal and is of my dog in my house or something like that. So if you don't want your um, a stalker to be able to find you by chance or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something to that effect. Stalkertools.com. We need to- <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, this is going to be on there after the show for sure. Um, and then, yeah, I could see, I could definitely see that being a problem. So I, I think it, it can be a really great feature, but I think you're right that, you know, they're not really going all the way with it. If, if you can still find the geotag on the photo, then it still feels a little pointless to me. A, a yeah, stalker. Like, let's lock the, lock the screen door, but leave the regular door open. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If somebody's going to go as far as to check your geotag information, um, they're going to go as far as to you know, whatever they need to do to find it. So, right. right. Well, you, Alex Lindsay, are geotagging Flickr and all that world in the in the world of uh, commercial photography? Does this fit in, or is this just a hey, whatever? No, it's a big deal. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of places that we shoot that we don't necessarily want to divulge the information. And I, th- I don't think it's useful at all unless they're going to close it all the way up. You know, it's not, you know, they might as well not even bother to do this if they're not going to strip it from the photos that are going up there. You know, I think that that's something. Now, I also think that, is there any applications that just strip the, the geotagging? I'm yeah. sure there are. I'm sure there are. There would be a great, that, I mean, we should look for that because I think that's a great, that'd be a great thing to do before you have, before you upload something is just have it strip it out. Um, yeah, there's there's a command line utility called Exif Tool that lets you kind of do anything you well, want. Well, I think that there should be some. What you really want is just you know I bet you you could do it. I bet you could do an automator, you mm-hmm. know, that you could basically just drag, drag a whole like set up a uh, a watch folder that you just throw things into it and it just cleans the data, hmm. you know. And, and before you put it put things up, you know, you kind of it's like throwing it in the wash. So the uh, because I think that I think that it's really important. People definitely have to keep track of that because it's not just your home. It's uh, most of us are fairly pattern oriented, and um, uh, and that pattern uh, is what people who are you know not nice tend to, to depend on. And by by taking photos where we go a lot, uh, we set we set you know if if something bad was going to happen, we're really setting ourselves up for that. Yeah, for me it so. seems it doesn't seem like geotagging doesn't seem like a default feature, even though it's defaulted on the iPhone. It feels like a feature where if I know that. I'm I'm going to be in Hawaii, or I know I'm going to be in Tahiti, or I'm going to know I'm going to be someplace where I kind of want to see later. <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to be I want to see later what I've where I was when I took a certain picture. I'm going to turn it on, and but, get you know, that. It, it but not like excellent. all the time. Every shot I take is marked. I'm like, oh crap, I was over there taking pictures of that pile of gold that I want to return to. I forgot <laughs> I, my, I forgot I had the geotagging on. I put it on Flickr. You know, but it's it's a it's a really interesting point that in a lot of ways this feature, the way it's implemented, is something that you would rather see on your iPhone, for instance, where you could say, don't stick a geotag on anything that's you know in my living room, kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, right. further up the stream would make a lot more more sense in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, totally. Maybe if you know the companies that are provide that were taking these images with Canon and and Apple, if if you're listening, please 
take Flickr's lead. Make yeah, it exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, let's give a quick nod to one of our sponsors, Alex. Who is This Week in Photo sponsored by? Uh, one of our sponsors today is Carbonite, of course. Uh, Carbonite is one of the uh, – it's just an easy, uh, very quick, and, and uh, secure way to back up your files. The, the thing is is that no matter what, whether you're using Carbonite or anything else, the, the, you, you have to find a way to get the most important photos that you have uh, you know, into the cloud and the most important uh, content. I mean, this could be uh, – if you're a professional, obviously, your, your, your key photos, your client photos you know, that, that, that really are going to be important – if you're um, if you're just a hobbyist, uh, you know the thing is is that you've got your family photos, you've got the the trip photos, you've got all these things that if if you had a fire, it doesn't matter how much you backed up at home, you you can have it in four drives, but if it's in your house, there's, there's water damage, there's uh, there's fire damage, there's kid, I have kids, <laughs> I have small kids, and there's a lot of damage that goes on to a lot of equipment um, if you're not careful. So you know those are the the kind of things that you want to, uh, the kind of disasters that you want to try to avoid, and the only way to do that is to get it up into, into the cloud. Uh, of course, uh, you can do unlimited backup uh, with anytime access anywhere for just $59 a year. And uh, so it's a great way to get, get started. Uh, from, from, uh, and you can, of course, this is all, they're private. Uh, from, you know, and you can see them privately from any computer, from your, from your smartphone, your iPad, all with a free app that, that's available. So um, uh, you can set this up to be automatic. It's not something you have to think about. Uh, and it's just a great way to, um, you know, make sure that your stuff is backed up. Uh, you can start your free trial today by going to Carbonite.com. And with the offer code TWIP, you'll get a two bonus months if you decide to buy. So that's uh, Carbonite.com. Use the offer code TWIP and try Carbonite free today. Awesome. All right, Alex. Thanks a lot for that. All right, story number three is a little, uh, this is really interesting. And it's, I know it's going to charge up the forums on thisweekinphoto.com slash forums. That's where you can weigh in on this. But... <clears throat> Urban Outfitters and a photographer have been sued over a racy photo. Basically, the gist of the story is uh, photographer Jason Lee Perry and Urban Outfitters are the focus of a lawsuit that's been brought about by the parents of an underaged girl who was photographed in a sexually suggestive pose with her legs spread apart. But now Perry, the photographer, is defending the photo, saying that the model, then 15-year-old Haley Clausen, knew what was happening and that her parents approved it what's the discussion point for this week in photo is this right regardless of not or not if the parents approved it from a photographer's morality standpoint is this fine you know should we should we be able to do this if we want you know take photos of you know suggestive photos of underaged people even if their parents say yes or no or should we just say no let's uh let's pass on this person and move on to the 18 year old model sarah let's throw it to you first what you saw the photo what do you yeah. think about this? Is this wrong? This is right? Is it uh, within within Perry's, you know, rights to have taken this photo? Well, you know, first of all, I think everybody right now is going to be like going to their computer like, what does the photo look like? <laughs> um, and that was the first thing I did. I was like, okay, what are we talking about here? Because the question becomes like, it's a judgment call, you know, on if it on if you feel like it's a sexually suggestive image that you're taking or you know, when you're shooting, it's just like what creates good lines and all of, all of this sort of thing that's going on. And honestly, looking at the photo, I, I don't even think sexually suggestive. I think like masculine. I don't. And she's just sitting kind of like a guy would for me. Mm -hmm. They're not showing anything other than like her knees, which is it just seems honestly, it seems kind of ridiculous. But, 
to the, me, the, the yeah. photo you're looking at on the front page has been cropped, though. The, the real photo is her. You can see the motor. She's sitting on the back of a motorcycle, reversed. Um, right. If you do a Google search, you'll see the whole thing. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a little bit more suggestive than they're showing on Silver. Silver, I think uh, Silver cropped it a little bit. So. Uh, now I see. Yeah. But, okay, so I'll go look at the, at the real photo. I mean, I can, I can see where this comes into play and there, and there are issues and there are different like, opinions on you know, if, if this image is too much or, or if it's not. But the, um, the model has her, the right to basically not do the pose that the photographer is asking for, for one. And models a lot of times are in control over, you know, what pose it is that they're doing and and in the shot as well. So there's a lot of things that kind of come into play with like what happened when this particular image was shot. And um, to answer your question of like, should we be using 18 year old models? I mean, the majority of the most popular models are under the age of 18. Yeah. So the high, their highest like modeling career is usually in the range of like, um, I would even say probably like 15 or 14, even 13 sometimes to 18 or 19 over up to like, you know, 21, then they start getting old. So, nice. um, we definitely can't not, use models that are younger than 18 i think that's kind of just not addressing that's like middle age for models right 18 well yeah it's not fair to the model yeah yeah absolutely so um i think it comes down to the judgment honestly of the of the model and the model's parents and the kind of understanding um what it is that who they're signing on with and modeling in general is you know, a lot of times sexy and racing, it's like, you know, sex sells. They talk about it all the time. It's yeah. all over marketing. You know, what about the kids who are in Abercrombie? I was going to say that. I mean, yeah. Are you kidding that's, me? that's borderline porn, this right? Is like, this is nothing. <laughs> this is like nothing compared to that. But they, the parents and the models are signed on for it. So, you know, they understand that that's the way that it goes. So in this case, I'm on the side of the of the photographer and of urban outfitters um also but i you know my heart goes out to the people who feel like that this is too much for their daughter i can totally understand that as well but maybe they they might want to consider that maybe modeling might not be the thing <laughs> yeah you know well, it's like they're having second thoughts because apparently if the if the you know, the story's true that they approved it when it was being shot. And now that they see the photos, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know. That's showing a little bit too much. You know? Yeah. It's like when grandma sees it, then everything changes. And I can understand that. I'd feel that way too. But that's part of what comes along with the business. Yeah. Ron, Ron Brinkman, where do you fall on this? Is this uh, too salacious, as they say? Or is this like, whatever, it's a photo of a kid and they, we've been doing this all the time? You know, it is kind of the world we live in, you know. Uh, I I mean, I agree with Sarah that at some level that is, if you're going to put your kid into the modeling world, you're already kind of, <laughs> you're crossing a line at some level. And I, I mean, you know, I'm not going to judge making that decision, but you've got to understand that that is kind of what you're going into. And I mean, maybe there were circumstances where these parents had no idea what was going on, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. It really sounds more like, you, you know, you said second thoughts or grandma saw it and you had to put on the front of why well, we're gonna sue them you're right grandma mm -hmm. uh or you know it's just a play for getting some money so i i don't know all the full details but at some level you know i yeah it doesn't seem like 
it's a slippery slope if you're going to allow anybody to retroactively come into all of these photos because they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, uh, you're right. I think, it's probably... I think it, it what it does for our listeners that are you know that are professional photographers that may be shooting these kinds of models, it really does sort of underscore though that have all your ducks in a row get paperwork signed make sure that your paperwork is very clear on you know what's going to go on here make sure that the parents are very aware of what it is uh and and cover your ass and make sure there's documentation on that yeah that's right because as like i was saying this is all this is very appropriate for the interview that i did with jack he's uh talks about model releases a little bit in that interview i think and he says basically that's just when like if Sarah goes out and takes pictures of a model, she owns those photos and she's licensing them back to that to that model to use and giving them a certain and very specific set of rights that they can use for that photo. So this photographer, or in this case, Urban Outfitters, who hired the photographer, owns these images and they just license them back to the model. So it's they have the power. You know, power is in the contract. Alex, what about you? Are we, uh, is this? I know you've seen this photo. Are you? Uh, where you're, you're a parent, you know, how, how do you feel about this? Well, in general, I, you know, I, I know that it's just part of the business. I think that it's, I think that the direction that we've gone with a lot of that photography is pretty inappropriate, you know, as far as, you know, or, uh, the urban outfitters and, and, um, Abercrombie and Fitch and everything else. Uh, and it just, it kind of turn it really turns me off, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, for, yeah. uh, you know, it's having just, the opposite it, effect on you than, uh, yeah, <laughs> it just, it, I, I don't, I just uh, literally, I see some of the photos and I just, I just won't go into the stores anymore. You know, like I just, I'm just like, you know, as a father, I'm just, I just, ugh, you know, and, yeah. uh, and it just, it, uh, you know, and so I think that that's totally inappropriate in this case. Um, she's a model. She signed off on it. Her parents signed off on the photos if if they don't want her to have those kind of photos, um, yeah, that she shouldn't be a model, you know. And 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 I think that that is, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything she can be done. I, I don't ag- agree with the how they're using those photos, but I don't think that that they have the right to, um, you know. I, and, and but I do think it, it definitely underlines the the need for a photographer. And I'm sure that if he was shooting for Urban Outfitters, they signed a fairly. Um, I, I would be fairly certain that that he he gave the, her a release or her parents a release that was fairly thorough. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I don't think that they're going to have much to go on, uh, you know, because I think that generally um, it's pretty much as soon as I mean, on most photography stuff that we do, the kind of releases that we have, as soon as someone pulls up a camera and starts firing, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, on the other end of that, yeah. um, you know, we own everything that goes into that memory card, you know, and and uh, and, and if we and if, and if models don't sign that kind of release with us, we don't use them. You know, because we just don't want to, we don't want to deal with what exactly what's happening here. You know, and it's not we don't shoot those kind of photos, but we don't want anyone to come back and say that it, they didn't like the they didn't like the photo of them for any reason, and then and then hack up our production pipe. So you know that. So I think that, and I'm assuming that I can't even imagine that it wouldn't be the, that that wouldn't be the case for Urban Outfitters. So I don't think that they're going to have any leg to stand on. I don't think that they should. You know, if they don't like it, they should t- pull their daughter out of being a model. I mean, that's just you know, um, and I and I and again, I just don't. I think that kind of photography is is uh, something I'd prefer not to be on the side of malls all the time. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, how do, how does your licensing work? Are you you know you shoot a wedding uh, and you're done with the wedding, you're getting ready to do the deliverables, give them their albums and discs or you know memory cards and all that stuff. How who owns those photos? Is it Sarah France or is it the client? Um, we still own the photos, but they are given basically an image release that allows them to use the photos for personal use. Mm-hmm. So it it basically releases those images just for the things that they would need and want. And it's all that they care about as anyways. But um, we're careful to do that just in the fact that a lot of times 
you know, um, I have other people looking at my wedding photography to use like Apple. So mm-hmm. we have to be a little more careful about how we do, how we handle things so that we don't run into any image, any issues when, you know, cause currently my images are on all the iPads in, in, yeah. in all the stores. So, you know, if, if that couple had an issue or Apple wanted to use those images and, and that couple had an issue, you know, I would have, You'd have a you'd you'd have some court time on your hands because they would, <laughs> they're they're perusing the Apple Store in New York City and they're like, hey, I want to buy an iPad. Let's go look at it, and they see their face <laughs> yeah. on the I mean, iPad. You know, obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously, we go to great extents to make sure that um, that they know and are extremely excited that their images are being used by Apple. So it's never a surprise. Um, you, so but, you basically do the Jedi mind trick on them. You say, hey, you know what? If you're lucky. I might use your images in the Apple stores. I don't oh, know. I don't, you might have to pay a little extra, but <laughs> all of my clients want to be that want to be that person for sure. That's cool. They're like, "Do you think Apple might look at our wedding?" I love. It would be so cool. I mean, it's it's really a fun thing for them. I I just saw the clients the other day who are who are currently on the iPads, and they they get emails like every couple of weeks from someone. I was in this place, and I saw <laughs> your wedding famous. photos. We're you know, famous, yeah. it is kind of funny. So, but. On another note, Alex, I, I totally agree with you um, when it comes to like the kind of images that are coming out of some of these stores are are offensive almost. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So I, I think if, if we start to push back more as like the consumers and 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 demand a little bit more respectful images in general of women and and of men, um, then we might not run across this problem at all. Yeah. And I think the only thing to do is, I mean, I'm not a big protester or anything else. I just don't go in. I'm just like, you know, I just don't go there anymore. You know, I just, that, that's, I, I'm not going to, you know, I don't have time to turn up any, anything. I just stopped shopping there. You know, it's just not for me, you know, and, yeah. and I'm just not, I'm not going to give them any money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and Abercrombie and Fitch used to be the most amazing store to buy basics. You know, like it was like back before they ruined it. It was, yeah. it was, I mean, I just used to get all of my, it had really high th- thread count, um, turtlenecks and all kinds of other stuff and they came in and did all this stuff and so it really hurt it, it really hurt me inside because I, I had so much <laughs> i look me, back and i have all deep. these old clothes they cut me deep it was like the place that i bought everything and then and then they went to this crazy whatever and uh and now i don't shop there i mean we're talking about it but honestly i feel the same way i'm like why am i walking into a store that's not even showing a piece of clothing like in their in their ad campaigns yeah <laughs> like what are we talking about here <laughs> I'm so confused. It doesn't and, make sense. You know, and, and that's the bottom line is, is as consumers, we make, you know, I know we're getting a little off uh, on, into a rat hole, but as consumers, we make decisions about what we decide is right and wrong by where we buy, you know, and, and we just have to sometimes, you know, it, it, we don't, you, you don't necessarily need to be and have signs out front or anything else. If, if people are doing things that you don't approve of, just stop going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah vote, vote with your credit card, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Alex, who's our... Who's the other? We have a bunch of sponsors on the show. We have Who's lots that? of sponsors. Everyone, wa- everyone wants to be connected to our talk of craziness and photography. <laughs> uh, this is our, our other sponsor, of course. Uh, another sponsor is uh, Squarespace. And, of course, Squarespace is the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And if you're, um, if you're looking, if you go to PixScore.com or DVGarage.com or even bordersack.com, which is my little blog that every once in a while I put something new on. Um, <laughs> the, it's easy to update. You just have to update. It was easy to update. It just I just don't update it as much as I should. But um, all of those are, show you very different uses of Squarespace. And uh, 
you know, and it's just it's just such a great way. It's easy to use inter- interface. I mean, a lot of photographers are trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to get their stuff on online, how to get their, you know, show their galleries, how to uh, have a place that people can build, you know, fill out forms for them and and and, and um, where they can blog. And, and now that you have it, this is just a really easy way to do it. You don't have to know anything about installing a site onto a server. Uh, you don't need to know anything about RS, you know, I mean, or, or um you don't have to know anything about CSS. You don't have to know anything about HTML. You can just sit there and drag and drop and type in a couple little numbers of how wide you want it, and it just works. And uh, so it's just a really, really easy way, whether you have, if you want to have Flickr photo display or Twitter widgets or social media buttons and Google Maps. All of those things are just simply built in. You just drag and drop them in. It's just, uh, and, and it's all done on the web, and it's all being served for you in the cloud, so you don't have to think about that either. Uh, of course, you can uh, sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. You can just start building a site and see if, whether that actually makes uh, sense for you. Uh, if you decide to purchase it, you can use the offer code TWIP9 and get 10% off for the first six months. So uh, go over to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP9 uh, to, um, you know, to, 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 if, if you actually want to get it. But you can just go over there without a credit card and just sign up, start building it. It's really worth checking out. So that's uh, squarespace.com. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Alex. And I'm holding in my hand here a book uh, from Jack Resnicki and Edward C. Greenberg. It's called The Photographer's Survival Manual. It's a legal guide for artists in the digital age. And I, uh, I was in Maui um, about a week ago doing, the, doing a, a couple of talks at the, the Maui Photo Festival. And I met Jack, and we decided it would be a good idea to do an interview and bring him on the show. And I'll tell you, when I sat through his talk, it, I basically literally hit my forehead like three or four times like, I need to be doing that. I need to be doing it. I felt like, you know, I felt like I left my house. I'm in Maui and my, my, I left my doors open. You know, it's, you had that sort of feeling of I need to get to a computer now to register all my images. Um, and the, his book sort of goes through exposing all those pain points and makes it, and makes it really easy for you to understand that. So who is Jack Resnick? He's a, he's a world-renowned and respected commercial photographer. He's based out of New York City. And his client roster consists of a huge list of Fortune 500 companies. He's done all sorts of things. He's been president of the Professional Photographers of America, or PPA. And he's really respected in the photographic community as both um, an accomplished photographer and as a talented educator, as I can attest to, because I am a student now. And in this interview, Jack and I discuss copyright, or copy wrong, as he says it, and how it applies and relates to photographers like you and me everywhere. I'm here with Jack Resnicki, um, as I was saying in the intro there. He's a, he's a photographer who I'm lucky enough to have on the show today. Jack, thanks for coming on. Oh, Frederick, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I mean, the, the spread, the buffet you guys had in the green room was terrific. Um, <laughs> you know, it was the limo, and, and it was just wonderful. You know, after your visit, we're going to have to restock the cabinets. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you know it, it's, uh, you're, you're more expensive than we thought. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, tell all, I tell all my clients I'm not cheap. I'm easy, but I'm not cheap. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, that's my line. So uh, you and I uh, met for the first time in Maui just just this this past a uh, few days ago actually at the Maui Photo Festival. Um, yeah, that was that was wonderful. You know, it's it's we got to do those hard trips. You know, it's a shame, but somebody's got to do them. You know, you know, you had to take one for the team. I know it. That's you know. that's right. That's right. <laughs> it was uh, you know at a resort, and and you know the weather was in the the mid to upper eighties, and you know no clouds in the sky, just 
just horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. I'm still trying to recover from the trauma. Trust me. Uh, so I had a chance to sit in on your talk, um, which was all about copyright and uh, specifically as it applies to photographers. And I'll tell you, like I was telling you right, right before I started recording this, um, sitting in your talk, I think it was uh, what hour and a half, two hours long. At least five or six times, I you know smacked myself in the forehead of like, oh my, how come I'm not doing that? Oh, I didn't know that, you know. So it became clear that I had to sort of twist your arm to bring you on the show to hopefully make the the listening audience here do the same thing. So you know, let, let's start off with just who Jack is. You know, who who's Jack Resnicki? Yeah, I'd like to know that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm paying all his bills. Um, well, I've been a, a commercial photographer in New York City for over 30 years. Uh, I graduated from uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, and I don't want to tell you what year, uh, with a, a BFA in photography. Um, came to New York, worked for a lot of really good people as a, uh, an assistant, which was a wonderful learning experience. And I was a studio manager for many years. Um, one of my last assisting jobs was I was assistant for Steve Steigman when he shot the Maxell logo with um, uh, the guy in the chair getting blown away mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, by the sound, which was a, a friend of mine, actually, Jack Colello was the model. He was a hair and makeup guy. Uh, uh, that I knew quite well, and uh, uh, opened up my studio. I've worked for uh, a lot of Fortune five, you know, five hundred companies. Uh, a lot of years for um, uh, Reader's Digest. We did a lot of uh, direct mail stuff, which was always cool because um, we were always selling records and books. So we would do all these nineteen uh, forties uh, uh, type of things. A lot of period pieces. Um, I've been working for almost the last twenty years for Toys R Us. I've done a lot of their catalogs, their Christmas catalog. We just finished uh, about uh, two months ago. Now uh, we did our 16th uh, special needs catalog, um, the differently able guide where for about a week or more, we shoot nothing but differently abled kids. Uh, and we've shot in everything over the years and it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful week of shooting. Um, uh, and I know the catalog just came out if anybody is interested in, in contacting either a local Toys R Us store or, uh, online. But if, if you, no, differently abled kids. This this is has symbols in it um, to uh, so you you know what toys are applicable for which uh, ability or disability. Uh, so you know which toys are good for large motor skills, for hearing, for social interaction, um, and and I'm very proud of doing that uh, that project. We we line up our crew months ahead of time. Um, it's a very emotional week, and, and we've actually had one art director once came for a day and, and asked off the project because it, it's we, we get a lot of kids with uh, uh, different abilities, but they're all fantastic kids, and we have a great time. We could do a whole show on that. I mean, That's it's great. Uh, um, um, but I've done a lot of advertising, and uh, uh, I've had a couple Time Magazine covers, and I've written a couple books. Uh, um, uh, two books on commercial photography, uh, and now I have another book out, Photographer's Survival Manual, that I wrote with intellectual property lawyer Ed Greenberg. Which is what I have sitting in front of me right here, right now, and that's that's the main thing I wanted to chat with you about. So what 
you know, lots of photographers have different verticals that they associate them, themselves with. Like, you know, some photographers hang their hat on portraits, some ha- hang their hat on HDRs, you know, landscapes, you know, this kind of thing. Um, you're, as you just described, highly skilled in photography. What made you go down the, the route of the legal side and e- explaining this kind of stuff to the photography community? Well, it's something I've always been interested in. Business is something I've always been interested in. And the germ of this started out actually years ago when um, I'm also one of the original Canon Explorers of Light. And uh, Canon asked uh, me, Seth Resnick, and Jeff Shiwi to do a copyright seminar. And I just really hung on you know, to that. Uh, Ed Greenberg, who's an IP lawyer, has been a friend of mine for over 30 years. We've known each other now. We play poker every week, too. And uh, this is what he litigates. Um, he's not just a lawyer who, who reads a, you know, uh, uh, the laws and then interprets it and writes letters. He, he uh, litigates in court, in federal court, um, and he's done some very high-profile cases. He has a couple out now that are in the news. Uh, he's represented a lot of the uh, top models at like Ford Modeling Agency and has written a lot of the um, um, contracts for Ford for their supermodels and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've always gone over things back and forth. So the business side is something I've always been interested in. Um, when you ask some of the things I've done, I've also passed president of PPA, Professional oh, Photographers wow. of America. And so I've been in a unique position to really see a lot of different parts of the business, not just the advertising part, but also uh, what I call the retail part of photography or social photography, which is the wedding and portrait business. And it just, when people had problems, they always seemed to call me and, and I would talk with Ed or I would give them advice and it just kept progressing along that way. Um, the one thing I do want to say, though, is um, this is a subject generally when, when I go around to speak, a lot of photographers right off the bat go, oh, eh, copyright and legal side, I don't really want to get involved in that. I just want to take pictures. And um, they say, I don't shoot fancy schmancy pictures. You know, I just shoot what I shoot, simple little things. I shoot it for my camera club or I shoot it for this and that. And we try and tell people that, that this stuff can be interesting and fun uh, uh, to talk about. Uh, and we've tried to do that in the book. It's very uh, accessible. But it's also stuff that affects everybody. It's, it's a lot of the people that uh, I've advised or I've talked to um, are, are not the big-name photographers, although Ed has a bunch of those uh, that he's represented over the years. But a lot of the cases are just average Joe photographers who've been blindsided, basically, um, or uh, happenstance or circumstance. Somebody they photographed is suddenly in the news for something. You what, know. What's, a, what's an example of that, the one that you can cite that, that, that particularly sticks out in your mind as, as egregious? Um, well, uh, there's a photographer in Louisiana, uh, Ken Knight, who's a portrait photographer and, and you know shoots very straightforward, simple portraits. And he called me up uh, one of his pictures, which, which was, you know, if you looked at it, it was just, a nice picture, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, but it was a picture of a guy named Jason Alexander, not not the actor, but <laughs> the the guy who married Britney Spears for about seventy two hours, and his picture was showing up in all the news media um, because the wedding itself was an exclusive to a magazine, so the news media didn't have any access to it when it was going on, and everybody wanted to see what he looked like. So his has has happened in in some cases like that. Um, uh, he contacted me um, because 
the news medias were just picking it up and just uh, they syndicate it, they share it, they they license it basically uh, without asking the photographer's permission. And as you learned from from my lecture, copyright actually stems from the Constitution. It's it's um, uh, right there in Article One, Section Eight is uh, copyright. So freedom of the press doesn't supersede your copyrights. So the newspapers really can't take your copyrighted image and just run with it. So he contacted me, and Ed Greenberg happened to have been in Washington, D.C., and he walked the registration through, which you can. Normally, uh, copyright registration, and you can do thousands of images on one registration, uh, which I do regularly, um, for $35. Normal registration is $35, but they did what's known as an expedited registration. Mm-hmm. And uh, that right now runs about, I think it's 765 65 or 80, $785, but somewhere in that neighborhood. And you can get a registration then and there, which is needed because you can't, uh, you have no leverage, or I shouldn't say no leverage, you have very little leverage uh, without the registration. And you can't file a suit in court without the registration. So you're, um, you're, you're, in a boat without a paddle, basically, if you don't, if you haven't registered your image. Yeah, well, I like to say it's it, as we say in the book, it's more like having a gun without bullets. <laughs> you know, you you have something very powerful, but you there's nothing you can really do with it unless it's registered. Yeah. So Ken Knight had this registered, and I do know that he's uh, Ed has collected um, um, at least a dozen times. Uh, for him, I don't know. You know, um, I'm not privileged to know the exact details of any of that or who they did, but uh, I know he went after the news associations. And we have several stories like that. Pictures you just would never expect. There's a, a very good friend of mine uh, who's passed away since. Photographer Stuart Gross went in a um, uh, a school to shoot uh, for a client. They were shooting the schoolroom and, and real kids and just, you know, snapshots of the kids doing stuff and this and that. And one little girl was very disheveled and uh, uh, she had a little mouse under her eye. Her hair was dirty. and But she was very outgoing. And when you shoot kids, you know that if you ignore a kid, um, especially somebody like that who's very outgoing, they notice it and, and, you know, they're hurt. So Stuart, being sensitive to that, just shot a couple pictures of her you know, really, you know, played her up and made her feel good, and and that was great. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the girl was murdered a week later mm. by her adoptive father, although it was an illegal adoption. Uh, Joel Steinberg, um, who went to jail, and Stewart's pictures um, became pivotal in in the case, according to the district attorney, um, because uh, it proved prior uh, abuse. Uh, which I needed to, that this wasn't some accident that just happened, that she was abused over a period of time. And, and the photographs showed that. Um, and these are pictures um, uh, that were, I don't want to say throwaway pictures, but they basically were. Um, you, you know, there's that famous uh, AP picture of the year of uh, Monica Lewinsky kissing uh, Bill Clinton in the line. That picture was a toss out. Somebody had to go back and. Um, uh, go through the, his files to find that to find that photo again. Yeah. So it's never the pictures you, you know that you think where where the Monica Lewinsky yeah was a big you know important you know moment uh, and you knew that because it was the president. But here Stuart Gross shot you know a little girl in the classroom that he just did just to 
make sure she didn't feel bad. And later on, they became um, actually historically important pictures. They were in Life magazine as pictures of the year. They were important in the case. Um, and Stuart guarded the licensing of that image very closely. He contributed a lot of money to children's charities because of what this represented. He wasn't just going to take the money. Stuart unfortunately passed away, and in writing our book, uh, Ed discovered another um, infringement of that picture um, by a newspaper who already years previous promised never to run it again and turn over any copies they had. So when this showed up again, and Ed called up their lawyer, uh, it was a a very fast and large settlement. and that went to Stuart's widow and his kids. Uh, so, Jack, uh, let, 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 let me ask you this. So a lot of photographers, you know, the, the, so that case in particular, the photographer was cognizant of the fact that his images were being used without his permission. So he was able to move on that, litigate, and get, get compensated for it. Um, there's, there's some myths out there about copyright that photographers adhere to. For example, hey, if I just set up a watermark in Lightroom or Aperture and export my images and when they go online, I'll be protected. Um, so, or if I use the circle C on all my images or my logo on all my images, I'm protected. Um, you mentioned you could, you could register thousands of images for $35. Is, is it registering them if I just stamp them with a copyright? No, not at all. Um, what, what does it do? Nothing? Is it just a placebo? Uh, no, it's not a placebo. Um, it it used to be required before, uh, I think it's 1986, when the U.S. became a signatory of what's known as the Berne Convention. After we became an international signatory of this international treaty on copyright, um, it wasn't required to have the Circle C notice anymore. Uh, but what it does do, it puts people on notice that it's a copyrighted image, and they can't claim um, an innocent infringement defense. Um, and all an innocent infringement defense does, it lowers sometimes uh, the statutory damages. It can. Hmm. Um, but if you have the symbol on it and somebody removes it, um, that's, that's very serious in the eyes of the court. And uh, uh, you can get punitive damages for that. Um, uh, or at least they make the penitive punitive for doing something like that. There was a famous case of artist uh, Jeff Koons who took a postcard and sent it to his foundry of uh, a, a couple holding the string of puppies. And he had it made into a, um, uh, a sculpture that he sold for you know, obscene amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the judgment on that came to the fact that he cut off the copyright notice on the postcard before he sent it to his foundry. Um, and because of that, that, that changed the, uh, the penalties. So it takes away that innocent infringement. It does put people on notice. And there are some people who will pause because of that. So then, then take me through the flow, because there, there's, there's a two-part question I have here. There's what should I be doing as a photographer? Um, it sounds like I should be working registering the images that I shoot regardless um, en masse after each shoot. And that should just be part of my workflow. Um, so that that's the one one part of it. How, how do I work it into my workflow or how do you work it into your workflow? And then the second part of that is what about all these social media services out there like Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and oh, all these boy. people are throwing images up there like by the billions, you know? What about those? Should we care? 
Uh, yeah, very much so. But you are, you have to read the terms of service, the TOS, for all those services. Frankly, I don't I don't put any pictures up, um, and I wouldn't if I would put any pictures up uh, on on those things. I make sure they're registered ahead of time. But sometimes, just by putting them up, you're giving a licensing to some of those services, mm. um, and um, some of them have gotten really nasty. Or you have to be very careful to make sure you opt out of things. Um, there's been cases of, of like, uh, Toyota pulled pictures off of Flickr and uh, put them in a brochure without telling anybody. And that caused quite an uproar. And I read online where one person said, yeah, they used one of my pictures. I'm waiting for them to contact me to tell me how much they're going to pay me. And I was going, oh, no. <laughs> Hold I'm your breath, waiting, right? <laughs> I'm not waiting for anybody to contact me. I'm going to call them, and we're going to have a serious discussion. And the first thing is... Um, when I find an infringement, honestly, I don't contact anybody. I um, I contact my lawyer and let him handle it. And uh, I've collected several times. And but the worst thing to do is, is to either tell someone, you know, you need to pay me X amount or triple this or that. You don't know how many times they've used it. You don't mm -hmm. know if that's the only use. You may be looking at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one thing uh, Ed does right away. He doesn't say he says, you know, this has been infringed. You need to send me all. Um, instances and and discovery like that when a lawyer's calling you if you start hiding stuff um it it can get very nasty so then what, um, what, do, you, what do you do so what's your what's your workflow the jack resnicki workflow for you know, well, integrating I, copyright into your your image ingestion process yeah it, it for me it's very simple it's after every job or after every big uh, event like going to maui i shot a, a lot of images and um um uh, what what I do is I make them into small JPEGs at the end of that. And that's one of the things. You want to send in just very small JPEGs compressed to about a, a five uh, compression. Mm -hmm. um, and I do like 700 pixels on the longest side. Um, and it's really very simple. I have a, an action in Photoshop. I just run through all the pictures. I, I, don't, I don't fix them. I don't do anything because... Um, Part of copyright protection is is any derivatives of my images. So if I work on them or combine things, those are derivatives later. So I don't have to re-register. So I just take everything, register it, and it's just, the, to me, the cost of doing business. Um, if I wasn't a professional photographer, I would try and register every three months. Just grab all my images, you know, dump them together, and um, um, register them. Now, I do it fairly regularly. I mean, I've collected on infringements uh, twice already that I've had to sue people. And um, that's more than paid for all my registrations for <laughs> more than my lifetime. Yeah. Um, um, but it, it's, it's a very simple process. You want to do that. You have to understand that unpublished images are easy to register. Once they're published, it becomes a bit more complicated and can get very complicated. And published doesn't mean that you're, you're in a book or you're in a magazine or in a newspaper. Published legally means presented to the public. Oh. So if it goes online on your website and your website isn't password protected and that anybody can come and see it, that's considered published. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you have a gigantic Flickr gallery that you've been maintaining for years, I'm looking at myself. Um, yeah. And uh, you got images up on Facebook, and none of them are, or you haven't filed for copyright for any of them. Um, you're no, basically exposed on all sides, right? 
Right, not file for copyright. I'm going to have to correct your language because it's something everybody does. It's you're registering your copyright. Registering, okay. Yeah, Got it. Um, and 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 sorry to be picky. You know, it's some people like splitting hairs, but it is important to know the terminology. Yeah. Photographers need to understand, you know, what that is. Um, but is it too it, late if you're if well, I'm sure a lot no. of photographers are like me and they they're like, oh crap, okay, I need to get this stuff, I need to get this stuff registered for copyright. How do is it too late for me to do that now, or do I just start no. from here on out? You start from here on out, but you also do your old stuff uh, because you're protected from the date it's registered. Ah, um, okay. Uh, with the with the exception of published work, which there's there's a three month window from first publication um, where you're still protected for a lot of the stuff, but um, you can't be infringed and then register. Um, uh, because you lose some of the protections in court, such as statutory damages or lawyer fees, which is one of the big sticks. If you're registered before the infringement, um, the penalties are so large that I would say the vast majority of infringements are settled before they go to court. Uh, mine was just before we went to trial, just before we picked a jury, because the potential is so large um, for uh, large judgments that generally people um, settle beforehand. Yeah. Now, when you, when, you, Jack, when, you, when you mentioned your workflow and you're sizing images down to, to the smallest size, why is that? Why, why do you need to size them down? Shouldn't they be large so you can see the detail in them? Oh, no, absolutely not, because it's, it, it's going to the Library of Congress so people can go in there and um, you know, pull out the files. Um, I mean, you can go in now and find things that are in public domain and use them. Um, I think I used one of the examples in my um, talk was you can download a scan of the original um, negative of Margaret Brooks White's famous uh, Margaret Mother picture. And you can actually make prints and sell them if you want because it's public domain. That that particular series was done for the WPA, Work Project Administration, and was paid for by taxpayers and as a result falls into public domain, uh, not into copyright protection. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other reason is, too, is that you have to upload them to the, in, you know, to the Internet to register them. That's the easiest way to do it. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be uploading. You know, I've, I've registered as many as 5,000 images at a time, five and 6,000, and um, it just takes too long to upload. And you're limited to one-hour sessions. You can do multiple one-hour sessions, but you're limited to one-hour uploading. Um, also, they only have to be big enough so you can reproduce them in court to prove that that was your picture. Um, okay, got it. That, so just that's that's the that's the crux of it. You're sitting in the courtroom and they're projecting the image. You got to be able to say, "Hey, that one is equal to that one." Therefore, pay me, right? Exactly. Yeah. What about video? I mean, we're we're in this age now where all these photographers are moving into DSLR video and wedding photographers and fashion photography. Everyone's shooting, adding multimedia to the mix. So it's not just still images anymore. How does this stuff apply to these big giant video exactly. images? The exact same way. And haven't you ever rented a DVT or a movie and see the FBI warning? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's the FBI warning because copyright infringement is a federal offense. It can only be tried in federal court. You can't go to civil court. If, if you have a lawyer who tries to uh, try it in civil court, you've got to get another lawyer real quick. Um, because all somebody has to do is look at the judge and say, wrong venue. And the judge can't hear the case at all. It's it's the wrong venue. Um, copyright infringement is 
only it's a federal case. As one person once told me, he said, you're not going to make a federal case out of this. And I said, not my decision. It is a federal case. Yeah. Well, then what about, you know, when, when we're dealing with multimedia as opposed to just exporting small JPEGs, we're looking at gigantic file sizes. How does that work? If I want to get these, if I want to get the, these things registered, how do I get, how do I get a multi gigabyte or, you know, terabyte, whatever video file registered? Uh, you you have to send in a uh, you have to send something in as they call it a deposit to the copyright office, and instead of uploading it, odds are you'd put it on something physical and send it in. Okay, okay, got it. So you, you yeah, the, so uploading and that convenience is not available to you. You're going to send them physical media with the, exactly with the, with it. Okay, so let, let's talk about the photographer survival manual. It's a legal guide for artists in the digital age. This is your book by uh, you, Jack Resnicki, and Edward C. Greenberg, JD. Um, why why write this book? Why now? Um, because we're getting inundated more and more by photographers coming up and coming, you know, with problems. Uh, it's it's amazing the stuff that's been coming up. While the internet has made it. Um, um, real easy for people to take your images basically uh it's also easy to find the infringements these days plus we're finding a lot of infringements actually aren't on the internet too i should say ed's been getting a spate of things that are showing up on clothes on t-shirts um he had one on a broadway show where they had somebody's image is like a main part of the background and reproduced in the um um and the uh, brochure and some other things. Um, we're finding all sorts of usages on, on beer packaging. Ed has one on a, with a model um, uh, on a shot that was taken about 25 or 30 years ago, uh, a Ford model, and they put it on a, a beer package, uh, a well-known beer. Why that image, why one that old, you know, I don't know, but highly recognizable person, and... Um, uh, it's a very good case. Wow, wow! Very good case of beer too, but that's something else. <laughs> that's great. So the the survival manual or photographers order this, um, you know, and I'm looking through it. I, I, it it should pay for itself many many times over. But what what can I expect? Once you know, if I'm a new photographer, I just heard this interview and I'm like, okay, I need to learn more about copyright. What can I expect to get out of this book from the you know if I read it soup to nuts? Yeah, well. Um, there's two things in here that, that I think are r- important. The one thing everybody says the book is is completely worth it. And and by the way, it's not an expensive book. It's uh, I think twenty four ninety five. And if you get it on Amazon, you know it's like a ridiculously low price. I think under seventeen dollars. Yeah, yeah, um, I got it. It was it was next to nothing. It was you know an, an yeah. easy Amazon Prime purchase. Yeah, I think our royalty on this, I think I make a nickel or something. Um, But (laughs) the reason we have it out is to help photographers. And the number one thing they say about it is that we have a step-by-step, screen-by-screen workflow on registering your copyright with the Copyright Office's um, ECHO system, E-C-O, which is Electronic Copyright um, and if you do it on your own, the first time it can be very frustrating. There's a couple little things, like there's one screen that comes in truncated that you have to know you have to expand because it, it took about a half an hour of my life that I'll never get back to <laughs> figure that out. Because the, the interface with the copyright office, I think, is probably done by the lowest bid. So we, we have a whole screen-by-screen, step-by-step, how to register, what questions you have to answer, what screens you need to skip. Um, 
The second thing, and, and that's for everybody, that's uh, for amateur photographers, I highly recommend it, for, uh, especially professionals too, but any photographer who wants to protect their work, it's registration, and we go over this over and over again, it's, it's um, insurance for your images. Uh, I'll be in a room of photographers, and I'll say, how many of you guys insure your cameras? And, you know, almost all the hands go up. So how many people insure your images with registration? And we figure less than 5% of photographers register their images, and that's probably a, a, a very generous percentage, um, wow. if I even say 5%. And it's like putting on a seatbelt. Um, you know, the analogy that, that we've used, and you heard me state, is uh, I get into a car, I put on my seatbelt. I, I don't want to be in an accident. I don't expect an accident. But there's a reason they call it an accident, yeah. Um, and it comes out of nowhere, and it's like, well, gee, this has never happened to me before. We hear from people who've been infringed, and I've been doing this for so long, and I've never had a problem. Well, well, now you have a problem, and it just eats at you when you see somebody stealing your images and profiting it from, from it. And then if it's not a registered image, you find out that there's very little you can do. Um, I've had many photographers say they've been infringed, it wasn't registered, and... Um, uh, it, it basically just costs them so much aggravation and money to go after it to find out that it wasn't worth going after. Yeah. If it's registered, it's a whole different ball game. Um, if it's a registered image, you have a very large stick, and um, uh, the terms of collecting it change quite a bit. A lot of cl- a lot of people. And they know this. They know photographers don't register. We've heard cases where they just try and put off the photographer. They say, you know, you, you know, I, yeah, I got your image. If you don't like it, well, too bad. What are you going to do about it? You know, sue me. And it costs, you can't collect if it's not registered. One, if it's not registered, you can't even file in court. But let's say you register afterwards. And, and they know that you can only collect as much as you normally would, and the legal costs are higher. If it's registered... Um, the penalties are, it can go up to $150,000 per occurrence. It can include your lawyer fees. Um, and it's, it's not actual damages. It's statutory damages. Um, what's the, what's the heard, difference? What's the difference between actual and statutory? Uh, it's the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. <laughs> um, it means if you normally sell your, excuse me, you never sell your images. Yeah. Ed would scream at me. You license your images. If you normally license your images, you know, for that type of usage for $300, $500, $2,000, that's what the court is going to award you um, with actual damages. The statutory damages, as I said, go up to $150,000 per occurrence. And what's an occurrence? Uh, that, is it is that like if someone printed 100,000 t-shirts with your licensed image on there without your permission, they get uh, one occurrence is one t-shirt or is the whole event or the whole lot one occurrence? I honestly don't know. That's a lawyer question. I do know that I've heard cases where the judgments have run into the millions. Wow. There was one where the lawyers argued afterwards that um, you know, they fought it and they said, "Well, it's 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 so punitive, you know, it's such a bad uh, amount that it's so much that it's punitive and it goes beyond, you know, what it is. And the court said, absolutely not. They say Congress is very specific on the damages. It's um, and uh, they upheld this multi-million dollar uh, damage suit on uh, copyright. It's a, it's a very serious uh, issue. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I want to paint a, a real-world situation. Now, let's say a photographer's out there, advanced amateur, maybe he's a dentist and he shoots in his spare time, shoots landscapes, um, goes out and shoots a bunch of images at Yosemite National Park, grabs an amazing image of El Capitan, uploads it to Flickr, and notice I skipped the whole, you know, registering the copyright. So he uploads it to Flickr. Fast forward two years later, um, he sees he's driving somewhere in New York City, and in Times Square, he sees his image up there promoting some Broadway show. Um, right. What a for this instance, what's his recourse? Well, actually, in that specific case, and the thing is, all these cases are case specific. Mm-hmm. Um, first thing he would do is register it right away. And because it's on a billboard, um, you have some leverage saying you want it taken down immediately, which may not be possible, which means uh, they'd have to settle with you. If it shows up on a product or something that's like in a gazillion stores, you still have the right under copyright to say, I don't want it there. You know, I I want an injunction to take it down. And the cost of taking it down may be so high that it gives you a leverage there. Um, but in, uh, l- let's bring it down. Let's say it's not a billboard in Times Square. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, uh, a case I had, which was a very simple case. I took a picture of a little girl, and it showed up on a website that sold coffee online. Okay. You know, discount coffee. Yep. And uh, simple shot, uh, simple abuse, you know, basically, but the, but the image was registered. If it wasn't registered, all I could probably do is get him to remove the image. Um, if I wanted to sue, a lawyer was going to cost me more um, than I'd be able to collect. Uh-huh. Because in that type of usage, maybe uh, how, much, how much could I possibly get for an Internet, small picture and something? Um, uh, let's say, I, because of my fees, maybe $1,500, $2,000. My lawyer fees would probably run to that amount, if not more, uh, probably more knowing how much Ed charges. Um, But now with a registered copyright, when we went after them, you know, well, we took it down. It said, well, you know, you may have taken it down, but I've been damaged. It's a registered image. Um, We deposed them. You know, they tried to brush us off, but we filed suit in court, and you can't brush that off. You can't say, go away. I mean, I've, I've had friends who've called up clients who say, oh, you know, uh, you know, this is a nothing and a nothing usage. Go ahead and sue me. And, and the smart ones go, tell you what, give me your lawyer's name or call your lawyer and, and tell him that this is a registered image. And, and suddenly somebody calls back very sheepishly and, and they try and settle very quickly because nice. um, they realize that it's, it's, uh, we, we can't emphasize the difference between having it registered and not registered. Not registered, I can tell you from cases with Ed, um, he's had cases where if it's registered, the settlements can run in easily into six figures wow. for, for a simple shot, nothing special. Without the registration, it goes from six figures to three figures. Wow. From six to three. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're talking quite a difference. and. Yeah. and it's shocking. I, I can't tell you the number of photographers who find out the hard way um, about registration. And, um, and we keep trying to tell people it's not just commercial professional photographers. This happens to amateurs all the time. So, Jack, um, should, I, should I do this? Should the next step 
for photographers listening to this? Should they be going out or should they just boot up their Lightroom or Aperture or whatever library and set up a, a an export for a small JPEG and export their entire libraries and head over to the the copyright office and regist- upload every single image they have? Should, is that the next step? Yep. I register everything. I don't edit. You know, I just send it all in when you know whatever i have in uh in lightroom is is my choice these days um and the url for the copyright office mm-hmm. is real simple it's copyright.gov easy .gov if you go to copyright.com you'll go to a site that's going to try and sell you something because it's a commercial site um but you go to the .gov they also have a step by step you can download um it's a little more difficult than ours and doesn't explain some of the stuff. But if, if you don't want to spring for the 16 or 17 bucks for our book, um, it's all available online and you can get it. I mean, our, our interest Fred and me is just to get more people to register their work. Um, um, and uh, there's several sources, you know, get the information. The first time you do it, give yourself a good hour online to figure everything out and get it done. But then you can save what you do as a template. Um, and even, a- even if you don't save it as a template, the second time you go through, it goes, it goes much easier and uh, quicker once, yeah. once you get the hang of it. Okay, so fast forward. I've, I've, I've exported all my images. I've got them uploaded. I'm happy. I, I you know, let out a sigh of relief. Now what? Now, how do, how do I police them? How do I know if someone's stepping on my toes and using my images? I can't be, on, I can't be online all time, you know, all the time, every day. What, what's, I thought what's you my, were. <laughs> no, very rarely. What, what's my recourse? How do, how do I keep an eye on this stuff? Well, you depend on friends. Um, uh, you do, there's two things I recommend. Um, uh, the first and, and best one, I think, right now is there are image recognition software out there. Um, there's a free one at a site called tinei.com, T-I-N-E-Y-E. Okay. And you can upload your image, and it'll look through uh, its database, and it sends you know robots out, you know the bots out to scour the Internet like Google does. Their database isn't as big as Google's. I mean, I'd love to hear the day that Google buys this company and, and uses their database to get everything on the internet, uh, but their but their resources is pretty good, um, and it's free, which we always like, and it's a real easy way to check for your images. The second way um, is just to make sure anytime you upload your images, give it a unique name that you can find, um, you know, a word or uh, um, a string of letters or something. Don't put up JPEG one, JPEG two, or photo one, photo two. Um, generally, people who infringe online don't change the file name. Mm. So you can do a Google search um, uh, for it, and um, uh, that's a good way. You know, you go Google Images and just do a search for that unique string, and you might be able to find uh, an image that way. Cool. Okay, so now um, my, I've exported my images. They're uploaded. Um, you know, I've let out that sigh of relief, and I found someone who's using one of my images, one of my registered images. How do I find someone? You, know, you said you mentioned, you know, don't contact the, the infringer, contact a lawyer first. How do I find right. a lawyer? I mean, you know, you open the, the phone book or go on Google or whatever, there's gazillions of them. How do I know which one is right for me? 
Well, you want to make sure you get the right one because it's 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 like a mechanic. I mean, you can get an you don't want to hire an auto mechanic to fix your airplane. You know, that's that's an uh an you know, uh what should we call it? Uh mechanic. Yeah. Uh avionics mechanic. Yep. Um, you know, or vice versa. A law, just a lawyer because I've run into some lawyers who really, really don't know this stuff. You need somebody who's an intellectual property lawyer, and you want to know that they've actually litigated cases. Ask You have to ask around um, and uh, find a lawyer that actually litigates and does these types of cases. You, it doesn't pay to get a lawyer that's, you know, your, your, um, you know, your neighbor's sister's uh, boyfriend is now a lawyer, and you're going to use him because, you know, he he's new and and uh, is going to be cheap. Um, it's not going to help you. You need an intellectual property lawyer, one that um, uh, handles these types of cases and has litigated. Not just that they're a copyright lawyer, because there's a bunch out there that don't litigate. Um, they don't go to court. Uh, I found out from um, uh, an injury lawyer that I know. Um, uh, she's a very good lawyer. She gets hired by other lawyers who usually try and settle cases for their clients regularly. That's what they do. But if somebody doesn't want to settle and they have to go to court, that lawyer has never been in court. And they'll tell their clients, well, we're going to bring in a specialist in your case uh, to help in the case because uh, it's really going to be for, for your benefit. Mm-hmm. What they're really saying is, We've never been in court. You know, we don't litigate. We need somebody to do it for us. So we're bringing in a pinch hitter, basically. Mm. And, yeah, they're and outsourcing your case, right? Exactly. You also want to find a lawyer that, that handles federal cases because copyright's a federal case. And federal court is a different set of courts. It's, it's the big leagues. You also want a lawyer who knows where to file because filing in the wrong federal circuit can, can short-circuit your case. Um, a friend of mine had a software case where he was infringed. He sued and uh, lost. Uh, the judge gave him like nothing for, for the infringement because uh, the judge didn't understand it uh, because they, they filed somewhere in the Midwest, I think. And he was told later that his lawyers should have filed uh, in like California uh, or in, in like Boston or New York area because uh, those circuits understand um, software issues, and they've heard those types of cases before. So it's it's interesting to um, we, now Ed and I have a uh, a website uh, called thecopyrightzone.com. Thecopyrightzone.com. Yeah, a lot of articles on that that we write, and we have a four part series about questions to ask when you hire a lawyer, and actually one of the parts are questions the lawyers asking themselves to see if they want to take on your case um and it, it's a good blog uh, a lot of good information there um uh, and again it's free which is always a, a a good thing for listeners yeah um uh but ask around ask friends that that might know lawyers who've, who've handled this type of case um you really want to make sure you get the right lawyer you want to make sure you're not getting a uh, auto mechanic to fix your airplane problem yeah um so where where can folks go to learn out to learn more about you and see some of your work and and learn more about this uh this this copyright law and all that magic? Well, the the copyright zone uh is is a great place for a blog. If they want to see my personal work, I have a personal website which of course is everybody says, you know, I'm I'm about to change and fix, which I haven't done in a few years. Uh but my work they could see at resnicki.com, R E Z N I C K I.com. 
Um, and I will tell you, every single image has been duly registered. <laughs> and so don't go stealing anything from there. Right? Oh well, well, no. On the contrary, when somebody steals my work, uh, all, the only thing that runs through my mind is ka-ching. Um, <laughs> so steal uh, as long as you have money in your bank account, right? <laughs> oh, even if you don't, we'll we'll still go after you because it's it's um, there's some things. Uh, it's amazing what can happen when you win a case in federal court. I mean, it, you know, as I say. Um, you know, speak softly and carry a big lawyer. That's um, great. That's great. Well, thank you, thank you, Jack, so much for coming on and in uh, in, in sort of scaring the bejeebas out of everybody <laughs> with this stuff. I think this is, you know, like we talked about before. I clicked the record button. My goal for this interview was, you know, not so much to to go into every chapter in the Photographer's Survival Manual, the book, but more to just peel back a corner a little bit of some of the things that photographers may be overlooking and tease them into learning more and w- about what they should be doing with their work. I think we succeeded. So thank you. I hope so. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, for in the uh, the blog post for this this uh, interview will definitely link over to the book so people can just jump over and pick it up. Again, it's under 20 bucks, you know, and it's uh, probably the best 20 bucks you've ever spent. And after you win your first case for being infringed upon, I suggest you send money over to Jack to, yeah. <laughs> to thank sure. him, to thank him for, uh, for saving your butt. <laughs> Donations are, are more than welcome. I, I will tell you though, we, we did write the book before anybody gets scared that it's going to be some big legal tome or something that, you know, Oh my God, it's going to hurt my, hair to read this it's written very light and and easy reading and it's it's meant to be read by creative people who we know are not going to read big heavy uh you know uh detailed things it's it's written for people to really understand uh these issues and it has cartoons in it too which is yeah there are there are lots of cartoons i love it it's uh it's really easy to understand and it's uh, i think it's a must i think you should uh you know, photographers. This should be one of those bricks in your in your learning wall. That you know, if you don't have this one filled in, you you water's going to rush through. So definitely pick it up. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. Okay, that was Jack Resnicki. If you'd like to learn more about Jack, just head over to his website at resnicki.com. That's R E Z N I C K I dot com, or check out his work on copyright for photographers at thecopyrightzone.com. Okay. Now it's time for listener Q&A. This is a segment where our guests answer questions that have come in from our audience via our website, our forums, our Facebook group, Twitter, everywhere. If you know, Wherever you want to submit a question to us, wherever we are online, you can sort of submit a question. And generally, they'll make it to us, and we will, if they, uh, if they fit in with the show, we will feature them on the show. Question number one is from the TWIP forums from Ron Derrick. And he says, I will be photographing different high school football teams in my city do I have to obtain signed signed model releases to sell the action photos of the players on my website? Alex, I want to ask you about this. Your your kid is playing in a football game. Some photographers out there taking pictures, and they get your kid in action with a bunch of other people and a crowd in the background, and you see them on a website for sale. Can you sue, or is the photographer in the right? I don't. I don't actually know. I think generally, though. Uh, you know, if it's, uh, um, I don't know the answer to this question. I, you know, I think that there, I, I, there's obviously some recognizable issues. If he's not recognizable, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be really a problem. I think even if he had a, even if he had a, uh, you know, his number, even if you saw the number, especially with football, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really questionable as to whether, 
um, you, that he would have a right to it if you can't recognize his actual face or, or so on and so forth. But I'm not, I actually don't, don't have the answer to that. I don't, Ron, do you have any better idea? I am not a lawyer. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not. You know, there are some good websites out there, just sort of a side note, that uh, will let you pose questions to lawyers. I can't remember the name of it. Let me, let me Google around and see if I can find it, because I think really you need somebody, you know, I don't have a definitive answer. I'm looking through Jack's book right now as, we, as you guys talk through this, because I know it's in here. I, just I mean, there's a lot of question it. about whether it's in a private or public space. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, and, and if you're obviously shooting, that that changes it. But if you're in a in a privately held space, uh, that usually changes a lot of the rules. I know that with like the NFL or the NBA, there's kind of blanket agreements with Getty or whatever that they're going to shoot it. But that's all, you know, that's all kind of tied up licensing, so that you know that that's how the sport. sport photographers kind of handle it. I think it might have something to, uh, you know, again, we're now lawyers, so we're just speculating. So, you know, listeners do your homework. But I think uh, it may have something to do with what the, the ultimate use of the photo is. Like, it, in this case, the guy is saying that he wants to sell these. So he's going to make money off of the likeness of somebody. So I think that changes the rules rather than, okay, I'm just yeah. going to, I'm just going to, you know, shoot these for my own pub personal use. I think you, of course, within your rights there, especially if you're in a public place. But I think where it gets sticky is if you're, you're putting a dollar value yeah. on it like sarah if you're say you're it's you you know you're out you're playing i don't know you know some sport volleyball on the beach in san diego there and some guys out there taking pictures and selling pictures of beautiful women on the beach you know <clears throat> in san diego and you've come across this what would you do i would be ticked <laughs> although Especially i do if it was a bad picture right? a cover photo of like a model or something i'm like I did not approve them to use a photo of me. It's kind of a common <laughs> joke I make anytime I see a yeah. beautiful girl. But um, yeah, I think I think it really depends on what you're taking pictures of somewhat too. I mean, taking pictures of somebody in a bathing suit and then selling them is kind of a little bit different than um, than taking pictures of somebody on a football field. But um, why? I mean, it's still. I mean, yeah, it's one is <laughs> one might be suggestive and the other may not, but it's still a person, right? It's still a human. Yeah. And well, sold for different reasons, yeah. I guess, and different motivations. But um, I always think of the of the stars, you know, in this kind of case. It's like, how many pictures have you seen while you're going through your, the checkout line, where it's like in, some movie star in a bathing suit or bent over in a funny position, where they're like, "Oh, look who's gained some weight." Yeah. So, you well, know, obviously, you can take the photo and sell it. If that's you know, the, the, there's there's a, there's a there's a bunch of different rules there though. You know, the, the if it's if it's quote unquote news, <laughs> you know, regardless of, of how you know, then there's a lot of freedom of speech allowances. Mm. Um, you know, so you know, there's you know, so you have like, and you know, the person we really need to have on here is like Scott Bourne would tell us in in, yeah. in oh, yeah, exactly what this would look like. But but you know, you have personal use throwing it up on the website or just showing it. Then you have news like then you have a, a, a photographer j- selling an actual image of something and then you have another layer which is news related or you know um you know that's it's being used in that in that function and then you have selling it for advertising and selling it for advertising is where there's a whole bunch of rules that are, that occur if someone wants to sell a print there's less rules but there's still some rules you know and, and so there's a there's three or four different stages of of what you can and can't do with the photo um and it's definitely worth researching to keep yourself out of trouble so yeah. just just to follow up, the website I was thinking it was called Law Pivot L A W P I V O T, and they have a free trial where it's basically a website where you can go on and ask questions of 
real lawyers and get advice and stuff. Um, so it might be worth just posting the question there. I suspect, like most lawyers I've dealt with, the answer is going to be, no, don't do that because we're not 100% sure you can, but you never know. Yeah. All right, let's move on to question number two. It's from listener Wayne Smith. He wants to know if any of the hosts are aware of any problems with Aperture running on Lion. That's Apple's latest operating system. He says his is running at a snail's pace since upgrading to Lion. Um, Sarah, you're you're the Aperture, you know, the resident Aperture expert on the show, and presumably you've upgraded already. Are you experiencing any of these kind of issues? Um, I have not at all, actually. <laughs> so... Um, I, so Wayne, it's all you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was shocked to see that question. I'm like, oh, that's really strange. I mean, it, it has been working great for us. Um, although we did have a little system issue recently after installing Lion, and I needed to actually reinstall the operating system. Um, so he might try that because that pretty much solved our issues. With um, we were having issues with everything, but we use Aperture the most, so it seemed like Aperture was causing was having some real issues. So, and a reinstall might be helpful. Where yeah, are you, Ron? Are you uh, you in that boat? Uh, no, I, I've not noticed any problems, but just for grins, I you know Googled this to see if other people were having problems with Lion and Aperture, and I I did find quite a few people complaining about it. Um, then I went ahead and Googled to see if people were having problems with Lion and uh, Lightroom, and I found plenty of people complaining about that problem. Yeah. Then I Googled to see if people were having problems with Lion in general and slowdowns, and I found plenty of people with that problem. <laughs> so, you know, There's a whole just lot kinda... of problems going on. Right? Here at Twib, we can do Google searches for you. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I kind of suspect that there are some issues with Lion. I'm actually kind of not that thrilled with with Lion in general so far, but... Uh, I suspect there are some some gotchas out there of some processes that may run away with stuff that may be affecting you. I su- suspect it's probably not Aperture or Lightroom or anything in particular, but probably some other thing that's running in the background that's chewing up CPU. Um, and yeah, like Sarah says, a lot of times, as much as I hate to do it myself, that that answer of reinstall the operating system does does fix it. So uh, the other thing I would suggest is bring up Activity Monitor. Yeah. Uh, and and see you know what's what's chewing up your CPU when this is going on. And you may find that that's generally a lot more effective because then you'll find some process that's sitting there and, and grabbing eighty percent or ninety percent of the CPU, and you can then Google what the hell is this strange thing, and that'll give you a little bit more of a clue as to what's causing the problem. Yeah, yeah, perfect. The other thing I didn't know about reinstalling this might be just something that. I didn't know, but you can actually shut down your computer and when you relaunch it, just hold down command R and it'll bring up the a window that'll let you do a reinstall and it's so quick and it didn't, it didn't mess with any of my, anything. It just hmm. kind of reinstalled. Wait, so what will this do? Lion. If you hold down command R when you restart the computer, it will reinstall Lion? It will give you a prompt to reinstall the. It'll give you a prompt to do a few things, but one of them is to reinstall Lion. Yeah, oh. reinstall yeah. the operating system. It's it, Lion's, Lion's got this thing called a recovery partition. It's a little chunk of disk space that they say that actually has a clean image of, I guess, the pertinent pieces of Lion, and uh, so it's, it's it's set up to kind of do this. It's pretty neat. So it's not wiping all your applications and everything you installed and giving you a brand new yeah, no, store-bought computer, right? It doesn't doesn't seem to wipe out any of your preferences or anything like that that have been set up, but it does kind of go... I, I suspect it's sort of like the... You know, you could you used to be able to do the... Or you can still do the fixed permissions. Mm-hmm. 
system. I suspect it's kind of like that on steroids where it does a, a more serious double check of all the system files and if they've been corrupted in some fashion then it replaces them that's cool so it's kind of like you know lifting up the the, the couch and sweeping under it and putting the couch mm-hmm. back down yep. yeah yeah like it, it. Wor- it worked for me awesome all right one more sponsor before we get into the picks of the week um this one is from audible.com alex what's uh, what's up with audible Audible, of course, is your uh, is brought, this 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 show is partially brought to you by Audible.com, and it's a leading provider. Seventy five thousand books, seventy five thousand books, pretty yeah. much all the ones you want to listen to. Now, Ron, have you been listening to anything good? Oh yeah, uh, I'm actually listening to one that's probably not for everybody. It's a science fiction book called Embassy Town by a writer named China Mieville. Uh, it's just very thought provoking, but pretty dense uh, a novel that's kind of all about aliens but language and how thought and language are intertwined and it's kind of breaking my brain right now but it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing stuff actually so but yeah i would suggest that you kind of need to get the sense of whether you like uh, this type of a, a book before you would embark on it but uh, i think it's great yeah yeah the, the, the best thing is is that you can commit to things i i just don't have the time anymore to the idea of unitasking with a book you know just sitting there reading it uh, it's just not even I, I don't I don't even think about doing that, you know, I uh, and, and so for me, Audible is the way that I still, you know, get that kind of information it's while I'm driving, while I'm cleaning, while I'm doing something else. Uh, you know, nothing. You know, there's a lot of things in our life that we do that seem like kind of busy work, you know, whether we're doing the laundry or the lawn. And, you know, you just you know, that, that's the that's the for me, the best time to be, you know, taking advantage of Audible. And now you exercise, take, exercise, exactly. <laughs> like all of those things. Seriously, you know, it's like. I don't enjoy getting out and exercising all that much, but give me a book to read and it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, totally. yeah. No, absolutely. And, and of course, there's spoken word. There's, there's all kinds of literature. There's audio versions of the New York Times bestsellers. There's all kinds of things that you can get a hold of. So whether you go for Ron's or anyone else, if you haven't done it already, you can, of course, get a, uh, you know, try out the service, get a free audio book. And uh, you can go to, go to get that at audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And uh, go up there and you can download, if you haven't already done it, you can go ahead and download a free book, which if you haven't done already, you're nuts because it's just awesome. And uh, download it to your iPod or, or, or your iPhone or many other devices and, uh, and just, you know, start playing with it. It is just really, really a great way to, um, to, to listen to books because all of us are getting busier. And it's just a great way to fill a lot of that dead time with something that's going to, you know, stimulate the brain. Audiblepodcast.com slash twip. All right, thanks a lot, Alex. All right, we're at the time of the, that point on the show where each gift, gift guest can give their pick of the week. I can't talk anymore. Um, and that pick can be software, hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, as long as it is somehow tangentially related to photography. We're going to uh, throw it to Sarah France first to give us her pick of the week. Sarah? Okay, my pick of the week is Couture Book, and um, this is so fresh in my mind because I just got one in in the studio yesterday uh, for a client of mine, and um, they are just gorgeous, like really high-end books. So it's thinner paper, but you have the option to do like linen paper or fiber-based paper or kind of more of a recycled paper. So they have a ton of different paper options and stuff. And they have a plug-in to Aperture that lets you design the book in Aperture and then just hit send book and it goes straight straight to Couture and then they send you the finished product. And the one I got in is just stunning. 
stunning. I love it. It came with a case and there's an image on each side of the case and it's just beautiful. I'm really excited to give the clients the book and, and, um, I'm just really excited about all the options and stuff that Couture is doing and the great books that they're doing, especially for clients like it's not really a great book if you're going to do a small number of images. Mm-hmm. I would say that. Like this is the book that I that I graduate my clients to when they say we want to have as many of our images in this book as we can. So mm-hmm. these books are typically around 300 images, um, and we do really big size books because I want them to feel substantial like a real album. But this is such a great way to not go into multiple volumes with a client and my client just been making their books bigger and bigger and I feel like this is really the way that a lot of them want to go because they are enjoying their images so much they don't want like a short summary version of it they want to really have all their images printed in something that they can keep out and that people want to look out and pick up so it can be a little bit smaller a little bit more approachable yeah you know I I have to echo that because couture book is kind of like that I don't know they're they're uh, Looks like they took a step back and rethought how these books should be created. And when I was yeah. talking to them a while back, it's I was blown away by the fact because I was talking to them, they were like, "Yeah, you could create a Frederick Van line of books where you go to say some place in Mexico and find this specific kind of covering, and then you go to this place in Italy and find a specific kind of paper to create your 2011, 2012." brand or edition of your own book that only your clients will get you send them the materials and they'll build your books from that stuff so you can you can you can get the utmost and customizability from these guys and you know you look at the videos on their site and they're like hand stitching stuff it's everything's printed on these high-end you know monstrous enterprise style printers and it's just it's amazing you know so it's a if you if you want that level of fit and finish for your clients then yeah couture book i don't I don't think there's, they're kind of by themselves in that area, right? They really are because, um, especially because they do leather covers. I mean, they do so many different funky covers and cover options that um, you can really satisfy any client, but you can also get really creative and fun. So you can do leather and fun, cool leathers or fabrics or like I have one that I do for um, boudoir sessions. That's a, that's a black book, but it has a lock on it mm-hmm. and it's magnetic, but still it's like, it's for a guy. It's like his locked book of his, of his wife or his fiance. So there's just kind of really cool uh, features and stuff that they have. They've kind of taken the book style and and just really exploded with all the options that they could on on how to make it um, umpteen times cooler. Very cool. All right, Sarah. Thanks a lot for that. Of course. Ron Brinkman, what is your pick of the week? Mine is uh, just a quickie. It's uh, actually a Google Chrome plugin. And uh, or an extension, I guess they're called. I don't know if you guys tend to use uh, Chrome as your browser. It's kind of been my default browser for a while now. But there's tons of interesting little plugins you can get that extend the functionality. And the one that just came to mind today earlier when I was researching the show and I was looking for some images, um, I actually used it, um, is just something that's called Search by Image by Google. Uh, and what it does, all it does is it gives you a little right mouse button menu where you hover over an image that you find on any website and it will then run off to google and do a google image search on that image 
So it's useful if you find a small image and you want to see if there's a larger version out there that you can look at. It'll Google will often often return. You know, here's the same image but twice as large as the one you see on this website. Uh, and the other kind of cool thing you end up just sort of as a side effect of it is it also gives you similar images that don't quite match but uh, are sort of similar in coloring and composition. Oh, cool! And so it's kind of it's kind of neat sometimes the random things that show up where you see an image and you sort of like it and then you're like I wonder if there's anything else that's similar to this uh, and you do a quick search and you get a whole bunch of other images that are kind of in the same genre if you will of of the image that you're looking at so kind of neat uh, kind of has, has proven to be useful at certain times and it's just called we'll put the link on the website but it's just called search by image by google very cool all right perfect alex Lindsay, your pick of the week alex <laughs> <laughs> sorry i was on mute okay. <laughs> so the um I'm still here. <laughs> Alex picks I see silence. them, but there's nothing coming out. Of and here. I jumped in there so quickly. It was like, boom, I was ready to go. And yeah. then there you had it. So anyway, so so this one is photography related, but it's kind of video related as well uh, for your iPhone. I talked about it a little bit on MacBreak, but I just have to talk about it again because it's so much fun. Um, this is uh, the Fostex uh, AR4i. So what this is, it's a little, and this is where we really wish we had a screen, screen uh, casting, but it is a um, it's a holder for your iPhone that, that allows you to attach mics to it, hmm. and so uh, and you get high quality. So the, the audio is actually coming in through the thirty pin connector. So you're getting really one of the problems with all the ways that we get uh, video into our iPhones is that you know it's coming through that little headphone jack. Well, hmm. almost all the ways to do that, and it's you know not very good. And so this lets you plug in a lot of uh whether it's labs, you you can plug in two different microphones and, and Frederick you you'll love this. They have these little microphones that come and you can point them in either direction. So if you want to do an interview with somebody, you can take a you can take one mic and swing it swivel it over so it's pointed towards you. Yeah. And one mic that's pointed away from the, t- towards the person that you're interviewing. And so and you know and, and then it's going to put each one of those tracks on the left and the right track so that you you can edit it later. Oh, that's cool. Perfect it's, for interviews. It's really cool, and it was just too cool not to talk about again. So, um, what is it so called again? How do you spell it? It's Fostex makes it. How do you spell it? Fostex F O S T E X. They, you know, they've been doing F O S T E X. And uh, you know they make lots of recording equipment. I mean, they're one of the classic recording companies, and so it's not a new company in any way, shape, or form. I I used to cut radio commercials on a Fostex reel to reel, and um, boy, that really made me sound old, didn't it? You know, you cut to the beat, it sounds like. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway, so, um, uh, but they make these little connectors uh, that pop on, and it's got a little handle. Uh, I wish I could meld this with the, the uh, you know, the Bibu, you know, that, that, we, that we use with the wide-angle lens. It's not, it's not quite as good as, as far as handling goes, but it is, and, and on, both, on both the tail end and the side end, it also has quarter-20 uh, uh, screws so you can put it right on your tri- tripod as well. And um, just a great... It's just such a really well thought out little piece of equipment. So, anyway, definitely check it out. It's about 150 bucks, and it's uh, the AR4i. Got it. Cool. We'll link to that from the show notes. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, see every show that you're on, Alex. I end up spending more money. So, thank you. Appreciate that. I'm a very expensive guest. <laughs> you are. All right. And my pick is um, like we talked about in that interview, the Photographer Survival Manual. It's a legal guide for artists in the digital age. It's only fourteen bucks. Fourteen buck investment. And uh, hey, you could be in court next week litigating over people infringing on your <laughs> your copyrights. So definitely go check that out. I have my copy here that I bought. Um, 
in fact, you know, I'll tell you, when I was sitting in Jack's talk, he offered to give me, he had a stack of them. He was uh, selling to the audience and he was like, here, let me give you one. You can check it out. Uh, and I declined and I ordered it because I, I think it's that important. This is uh, one of those books that should be on your shelf for uh, if you're a photographer, if you're making images, even if you're not a pro, if you're just some guy that's, you know, you just like taking pictures and sharing them with people on Flickr, you need to know what's going to happen to you or what your legal rights are if you, uh, you're driving down the highway and you see a billboard with one of your favorite images up there. What's your recourse? So this book tells you what your recourse is and what you can do to make sure that you get paid if that happens to you. So definitely check that out. It's the Photographer Survival Manual, a legal guide for artists in the digital age. We'll link to it in the show notes, but uh, you can just search for it on Amazon. It's only 14 bucks or 13 bucks and change. All right, we are at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Sarah France, where are you at online? Where would you like people to go to find out more about you and all that magic? Um, well, you can find me at sarahfrance.com, of course. And Sarah is spelt without an H. And then also, um, we've been spending way more time on our Facebook page and on the business page. So I'd love for people to check me out there. Um, our Twitters are going into that now and blog posts and, and everything. So that's facebook.com backslash Sarah France photography. Very cool. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, uh, thank you. Ron Brinkman, where are you at online? Where can people see pictures of you sitting in your book filled room barefoot? <laughs> you have to check the geolocation for my... <laughs> No, uh, best place to find me these days is still on Twitter, just Ron Brinkman. You can search for Ron Brinkman on Flickr as well, and you'll uh, probably find my pictures. Very cool. All right, thanks, Ron. And Alex Lindsay, where are you at on the, or in the ether? Alex is off mute. Hit the mute button, Alex. Sorry, there's been a lot of <laughs> external noise. There's been a lot of external noise here, as so I was just trying to. Got it. Not, um, not have it affect the show. Gotcha. Uh, I'm just looking out for you, Frederick. Thank you. It's all about me. Uh, best place to find me is uh, Twitter, uh, Alex Lindsay, all one word. Of course, you can also check out some of our live feeds. Uh, generally on, thir- on Thursdays at 6 p.m., it's worth, uh, you know, if you follow me, if you either follow Pixacore, that's a C-O-R-P-S, or Alex Lindsay uh, on Twitter, we will tell you when we're doing our live feeds, which generally happen on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Uh, this Thursday, we're gonna be, it's going to be Gear Media Tech, and we're going to be talking about uh, you know, we're going to break it down a little bit of the live stuff that we did for Dreamforce and talk about some of the tech issues that we had to deal with and, uh, and how we uh, solve them. And uh, so anyway, so it should be a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be a, kind of a video-heavy one uh, this week. And later in the month, we'll be uh, doing some shooting uh, with Frederick and hopefully uh, Derek's story as well uh, uh, live and letting people ask questions and so on and so forth while we do it. So uh, stay tuned. Very cool. All right. And if you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Google Plus profile, our Facebook fan page, our Twitter profile, and so much more. If you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com, my Google Plus page at fvj.me slash plus, or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.